Hey folks, it's Forrest and Scott from the Astonishing Legends podcast. We just found out that Mint Mobile has come out with an amazing wireless deal for this holiday season. If this was an episode of our show, I'd think this was a myth. It's too good to be true. But the thing is, like some of the legends we cover, this deal is true. Right now, when you switch to Mint Mobile and buy any three-month plan, you'll get another three months for free. I'm not sure how they're able to do this. Oh wait, I do know how they can do it. They're online only. No stores, no traditional retail costs. Mint Mobile passes that savings to you. That's unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Like we say on our show, sometimes the unbelievable is true, and this deal proves it. Switch to Mint Mobile now and get premium wireless service starting at just 15 bucks a month. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan. Keep your same number and all of your contacts. That's right, listeners. For a limited time, buy any three-month Mint Mobile plan and get three more months free by going to mintmobile.com slash wireless. That's mintmobile.com slash wireless. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash wireless. Good evening. Tonight's film in our movie classic season is one of the best of all black comedies, Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. For my money, it's still the best, most horrifying and funniest film about the menace of nuclear war ever made. Now then, Dimitri, you know how we've always talked about the possibility of something going wrong with the bomb. The bomb, Dimitri. The hydrogen bomb. Well, now, what happened is um, one of our base commanders... I can no longer sit back and allow communist infiltration, communist indoctrination, communist subversion. Well, he went a little funny in the head. And the international communist conspiracy to sap and impurify all of our precious bodily fluids. You know, just a little funny. And... uh, He went and did a silly thing. Well, I'll tell you what he did. He ordered his planes to attack your country. Uh, Well, let me finish, Dimitri. A nuclear war could break out any minute. That warning from North Korea's deputy ambassador to the United Nations. Rocket Man is on a suicide mission for himself and for his regime. The United States is ready Willing and able. The firebombing of Dresden took hundreds of sorties. The bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, one sortie. Once we scale up, a nuclear war would be unimaginably horrible and would usher in an entirely different kind of conflict. Danger will come not just from blast or heat or nearby radiation effects but also from fallout, which may occur miles and miles away from the blast. Because of the automated and irrevocable decision-making process, which rules out human meddling, the doomsday machine is terrifying and completely credible. Measures that reduce the time and take the human out of the loop, I worry about that as increasing the risks of an unended or accidental nuclear use. Hello and welcome to Science-ish. I'm Rick Edwards, joined as ever by Dr. Michael Brooks. Hello. So, 
You know the show's format, but I still say it at the top, which is in a way part of the format. Oh, I like that's Snake quite meta, isn't is it? It's eating its own tail. <laughs> uh, so we take one piece of fiction, uh, we ask one big old question to one big old scientist, and then we have a chat. And this week, it's my turn to have a crack at something which, you know how things just sort of go in and out of fashion, there are trends for stuff, and this is really in at the moment. I'm talking, of course, about nuclear war. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my favourite kind. Uh, So we're going to be exploring the legendary uh, political satire from 1964, Dr. Strangelove. Nice. What's the full title? How I... Learn to, to stop, stop worrying and, and love, love the, the bomb. bomb. Yeah, that's it. Uh, seen it? Yes. Yeah, many years ago, actually. I think I watched it when I was slightly too young. As right, my yeah. dad said, this is a fantastic film. And I watched it and <laughs> didn't really get it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just a sort of satire on the Cold War, released in 64, where that was quite a hot topic. Yeah. And sort of describes a situation where someone in the American military thinks it's time to get busy and nuke Russia. And then the ensuing chaos and negotiations. And it ends, spoiler, isn't it? I think it's I think been I, around long enough. It's that, been around long enough. It, I think it's okay to give it spoilers. It ends... Really badly, <laughs> with a, a gentleman just riding a huge <laughs> missile. <laughs> and right now, obviously, there's lots of talk about North Korean missiles and Donald Trump's red button. Got to ask one question here, which is very, very positive stuff, <laughs> as always here on Science yeah. Season three. <laughs> yeah. How close are we to nuclear war? <laughs> oh, what a big question. And um, who do we get to give us an answer? This is good, actually. We're doing well at the moment. We've got a guy called Peter Fever, Professor of Political Science at Duke University. He knows his stuff. He was on the National Security Council of both Clinton and Bush Jr. And in November 2017, when the North Korean threat was, I sort of don't want to say this, and yet at the same time I do, hitting fever pitch. Remember he's called Pete Fever? I see what you did there. Yeah. Fever pitch. God's sake. Move on. Anyway, he he was uh, one of the expert witnesses who was asked to testify before the US Senate on the president's power to launch a nuclear strike. Right. So first things first, before we get into old Trumpy Pumpy, um, we're going to look at how we got to this point. So we're going to step back in time to the 1940s. That's when the first nuclear bombs detonated at the end of World War II. There were several early debates in the nuclear age. The first one was, is this really a revolution? Have we changed things or is this just a bigger bomb? More people died in the firebombing of Tokyo and Dresden than died in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. 1,350 American bombers of the 8th Air Force streaked their vapor trails into the dawn. Miles of these bombers hammered Reich factory and railroad centers in the east. So there was an argument that said, this is just another weapon and we can treat it as just another weapon. But that view lost out to the dominant view that said, this is qualitatively different. We think that uh, the policy which is being pursued by the Western powers is one which is almost bound to end in the extermination of the human race. The firebombing of Dresden took hundreds of sorties. The bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, one sortie. Once we scale up, a nuclear war would be unimaginably horrible and would usher in an entirely different kind of conflict. With this bomb, we have now added a new and revolutionary increase in destruction to supplement the growing power of our armed forces. 
In their present form, these bombs are now in production, and even more powerful forms are in development. And the first decade of research and development by the U.S. scientists was really on how to scale up production. And by the mid-50s, they had mastered that, and we could mass-produce weapons. And where we had just a handful in the 40s, we were uh, achieving thousands in the 50s, and by the 60s and 70s, tens of thousands. America is today the strongest, the most influential, and most productive nation in the world. The Soviet Union were just behind us by a few years. Turns out they were not as far behind the United States as we thought because they stole the plans. So they were able to detonate their own weapon ahead of when we thought they could, and they were able to match the U.S. Uh, weapon development for weapon development. And so by the mid-70s, they had tens of thousands of weapons uh, aimed at us, and we had similar numbers aimed at them, and the U.S. and Soviet Union were poised in this nuclear standoff, each one threatening and capable of destroying the world. Tonight, I want to speak to the people of the Soviet Union to tell them it's true that our governments have had serious differences, but our sons and daughters have never fought each other in war. There certainly is a debate on why we didn't have a nuclear war. My students today, none of whom lived during the Cold War, you can find them speaking nostalgically about the Cold War. Oh, those were the days when things were stable, unlike today when we're in a, a very complex world and fighting and killing each other. Oh, wouldn't it have been great to be back in the 50s and 60s when we weren't? Well, of course, that's not what it felt like at the time. A nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. So this, just to sort of forewarn you, really, this is going to be leaning quite heavily on the ish part of science <laughs> You mean not to, a lot of science to the to, to the extent that you could call this one history-ish. <laughs> <laughs> it's legacy of science, though, isn't it? I mean, it, it, oh, it is. It's very it's, much the legacy of, of scientific projects of World War II. Very true. And before we get into the, the history stuff, we are going to just have a, a bit of sort of physics chat oh, um, about good. how these Perfect. damned bombs work. Oh, tell me everything you know. Uh, I will, as, as always. <laughs> ten seconds later, I'll fill in the gaps. That's very rude and also unfair, <laughs> given that you know that the record is I've spoken uninterrupted for five minutes on this podcast. <laughs> so two types of uh, nuclear bombs. The first one was the A-bomb, which is fission. Uh, and fission works just by splitting heavy atoms into smaller ones like uh, plutonium uh, and uranium, um, and they are pretty powerful. Um, they are not, however, as powerful as fusion bombs, which combine two or more smaller atoms, which is the process that generates all the heat and so on in the sun. So thermonuclear fusion bomb can be like a thousand times more powerful than a fission bomb. So the, the bombs that were dropped on Japan in 1945 were both... A bombs, um, so the sort of um, the, the weak ones, yeah, yeah, <laughs> if you like, yeah. not not massively weak. Um, I'm not sure they felt they were getting off lightly. No, no. Well, I mean, they weren't at the time because at the time they didn't have the alternative. So we know the bombs dropped, and we know what happened there. What happened after the end of World War Two? Then the the hydrogen bomb was developed. Weirdly, with thermonuclear bombs, H bombs, it's a two for one bomb because in order to initiate the fusion, you have to put in a huge amount of energy. Therefore, you have a fission bomb first. 
Oh. So it sort of goes, you have a primary component detonates, which is a, like a fission bomb, and then that triggers the secondary fusion explosion. That's a trick, so isn't you've it? you've got a bit of both in there. Yeah, yeah. They're serious, serious pieces of kit. To the extent that when they had the idea for the fusion bomb, some of them were quite worried that you might just ignite the entire atmosphere and vaporise the Earth. Yeah, yeah. About 40 mg has a radioactive half-life of 93 years. If you take, say, 50 H-bombs in the 100 megaton range and jacket them with cobalt thorium g when they are exploded, they will produce a doomsday shroud, a lethal cloud of radioactivity which will encircle the Earth for 93 years. So the first American test of the hydrogen bomb was in 1952. The Soviets weren't far behind. The term given to the situation at the time was... MAD, M-A-D, mutually assured destruction. <laughs> it wouldn't really matter whether you did the first strike or not. Yeah. You do the first strike, then you get hit back, and both countries are just annihilated. And the rest of and the world is in a nuclear winter, presumably. Yeah, exactly. I mean, how, how bad is that? So nuclear winter started getting discussed much later in the early 80s. Well, nuclear winter is the predicted uh, from from physics calculations, uh, cooling and darkening of the Earth following a nuclear war, basically. They drew the comparison between a nuclear strike and the impact of the meteor at the end of the Cretaceous. Yeah, that right? Right, yeah. yeah. Throws up this cloud of dust and smoke, plunges the planet into darkness, reduces the temperature by like 20 degrees, so you throw yourself into a mini ice age. Yeah. Yeah. Even for a small nuclear war, that the burning of 100 downtowns uh, globally was enough to produce a hemisphere-wide global nuclear winter. Crops fail. You're talking mass starvation. And that's the world over. That's not restricted to the place that you yeah. hit if nuclear war really kicked off in a serious way. So if you were neutral in the whole thing, you're still You're basically, not really neutral. It you're still be... wishing they didn't really do yeah. it. And then obviously in 1962 is where it came incredibly close to, yeah. to kicking off with the Cuban Missile Crisis. Good evening, my fellow citizens. Within the past week, unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on the island of Cuba. So Khrushchev, the Soviet leader, has decided to put nukes into Cuba. To be clear, the Russians are putting it there so that they can reach the west coast and east coast of, uh, of America. So Kennedy came out and said, look, any sort of missile launch from Cuba will be met with a full retaliatory response on the Soviet Union. And I think at the time, people felt like Khrushchev was outgunned. But the truth is that an executive committee member in the States, people were saying it's probably like one in a hundred, one in a thousand, the chance of it actually happening. They, they reckoned it was one in ten. And part of it was Kennedy thinking, this could lose me a, an election if I don't show strength here. <laughs> really? Yeah. Right, yeah. This sudden clandestine decision is a deliberately provocative an unjustified change in the status quo, which cannot be accepted by this country, if our courage and our commitments are ever to be trusted again. I mean, how did this information all come out? Weirdly, it's almost from one guy, a guy called Daniel Ellsberg. He's most famous probably for the fact that he's the guy who leaked the Pentagon Papers. But he also realised that there's a guy called General LeMay, 
who was in, in charge of strategic air command. So he's the guy who said, yeah, let's get busy on Japan back in 45. And he had a thing that got dubbed wargasm. Wargasm was the thing. <laughs> it doesn't sound perfect. And there were plans in place to just wipe out Russia. Every city with a population of over 25,000 would get nuked. Total annihilation. But the really awful thing about it was that he'd maneuvered it so that he was the one who had the final say on whether that was going to be enacted. Oh, So Daniel Ellsberg managed to effectively get the papers moved up a level to the president, to the Secretary of Defence, because they'd been out of the loop. And he'd stolen uh, copies of all of these uh, nuclear documents. And he's got to go, great, so I can read them. No, you can't, unfortunately, because he gave them to his brother, who hid them on a landfill site. Um, so he hid them under what? a big, heavy green stove. And he's like, no problem, I'll just come back and uh, under the green stove. There was a hurricane, uh, the green <laughs> stove went missing, and so did all the papers, so no one's ever found those papers. That's like something um, from Scooby-Doo. Yeah. I mean, that's terrible. Yeah. It's so precarious. I mean, the whole thing's just a massive balancing act. And with Trump in office now, people are starting to argue that we might be getting the balance a bit off. Mandrake. Do you recall what Clemenceau once said about war? Uh, no, I didn't think I do, sir. No. He said war was too important to be left to the generals. When he said that 50 years ago, he might have been right. right, right Early right, in the right, right, right. Uh, nuclear age, it was decided that civilians had to control the use of nuclear weapons, and in particular that the president of the United States had to control the use, that it was a decision so consequential that only the highest elected official, the civilian commander-in-chief, could be trusted to make that decision. And this has stood us in good stead. However, President Trump called it the calm before the storm, talking to reporters Thursday night while he was surrounded by his top military brass. Uh, Have you any idea what the president might have meant by the calm before the storm? Was he referring maybe to North Korea? That's a lot of people are thinking. The thing that he does on Twitter all of the time. And this time he just decided to do it in front of the White House press pool in the state dining room of the White House. In the Trump age, there's a number of critics of the administration, particularly Democratic politicians in the Senate and the House, who see the president as somewhat difficult to manage. We can't stop him from tweeting, so the story goes. How could we stop him from doing other things? Today, war is too important to be left to politicians. They have neither the time, the training, nor the inclination for strategic thought. There are real things to be concerned about regarding nuclear command and control, but I do believe that some of the concerns raised specifically about President Trump are overdrawn and confuse two very different scenarios. The first scenario is where the military wakes up the president because the military has been watching world events and sees that, for instance, North Korea might be about to attack us with nuclear weapons and the president might want an option to strike first so as to prevent the missile from launching before it could hit the United States. In that scenario, the military wakes up the president. The president has a very limited time to make a decision. Whatever the president's decision is, I believe the military would carry it out. But what about the other scenario? And I think it's the other scenario that people are worried about, which is 
when the president wakes up in the middle of the night and says, Oh, I want to fire off a nuke. So he wakes up the military. There's not a crisis context. North Korea is not about to attack. But the president in this cartoon sort of scenario, instead of firing off a tweet, says, let me fire off a nuke. Well, the system is not primed to respond reflexively to the president in that setting. There's not a button that the president has access to that he pushes and immediately missiles fly. Before the president could actually see his order executed, he would have to persuade a large number of officials to go along with it. So this is good news. I mean, this is what I want to hear, is that it's not just down to Trump sort of waking up in a bad mood or whatever. Exactly. So that the worry of it just being a kind of flippant act is sort of ungrounded. That does I make me say. feel a lot better, I have to say. Yeah. Because a lot of the media reporting and the political cartoonists, or whatever, you know, act like, you know, he's got a button by the side of his bed and, you know, he, he if he's, you know, in a certain sort of playful kind of mood, he might just push it and see what happens because he's a, you know, psychopath, sociopath, whatever. But actually, there are lots of sort of, you know, checks and balances in place. He, he does have a uh, a red button on his desk in the Oval Office. Um, that red button causes valet, and uh, he usually just orders a Diet Coke, apparently. <laughs> so it's not I'm such okay a worry. That. I'm not okay such a with worry. that, yeah. yeah. Mm. Is there a red button? I mean, you know, are there people with access to means to fire you know, a, a nuclear missile? Yes. So he has what's called the football, which is uh, a black briefcase, um, and it contains the, the nuclear codes. And interestingly... As soon as you hear about that, you will see in every bit of footage of Donald Trump, someone very nearby is carrying that black briefcase. It follows him around everywhere. Every every president is followed around by this black leather briefcase. Um, And it's quite fun spotting it when when you know about it. Why is it called football? I mean, dropkick and is that just an Codename Dropkick was just the codename for for the first nuclear plans. Um, and so football just kind of stuck. Yeah. And for the launch order to be valid, it just needs to come from the president. So technically, there is no there are no checks or balances on that. If you can verify that the order is coming from the president to fire a nuclear weapon, you will do it. Technically. Technically. No, no one can kind of sort of get the call and then sort of cover the mouthpiece of the phone and be like, do we think this is a good idea, guys? <laughs> I'm not sure. Donald, I'm just going to put you on hold a minute. Yeah. <laughs> I was under the impression that I was the only one in authority to order the use of nuclear weapons. Uh, that's right, sir. You are the only person authorized to do so. And although I uh, hate to judge before all the facts are in, it's beginning to look like uh, General Ripper exceeded his authority. Have there been, like, you know, accidental close shaves with, with nuclear war? Yeah, absolutely. There's a guy called Stanislav Petrov, who was the duty officer at this secret command centre outside Moscow. And in the early morning of a, a day in September in 1983, their alarms went off and said five US intercontinental ballistic missiles have been launched. And strictly speaking, Petrov should have just immediately called that in and the response to that would have been less fire fire back at them. Yeah. And this is at a time when, you know, Reagan, it seems, is basically pretty up for a nuclear fight. So it's really tense. And Petrov has just used a bit of 
judgment. His gut feeling was he just didn't believe it. And so he didn't immediately call it in. He waited. And then they got corroboration from their like land-based radar and there was nothing. The satellite had confused a reflection of the sun off the top of the clouds or something for a a ballistic missile. But that's the kind of thing that, that... that can happen. So where are we now on the sort of scale of being in danger or not? Uh, Well, uh, Professor Peter will tell us exactly where we're at on the doomsday clock. We have just confirmed North Korea has launched a ballistic missile. North Korea crossing the nuclear threshold is an ominous development. And I do think nudges the world closer to a armed conflict that could go nuclear. It's also the case, and this is why I said to the senators that even though I think one version of the scenario is of the concern is overdrawn, there's another reason why we'd very much need to look at a command and control and perhaps update it. White House says North Korea was behind the cyber attack that spread around the world and there's cost There's opportunities that the adversary has to get inside our command and control system in ways that would have been impossible decades ago but now increasingly seem at least in the realm of possibility because of advances in cyber intrusion that could compromise the integrity of our nuclear command and control system or at least of the decision-making portion of it. The idea of robots who can kill humans on their own has been a science fiction staple for decades. There's a a worrying trend. It hasn't shown up yet in nuclear command and control, but it's shown up in other areas, other military systems. And that is the rise of automated, machine-driven artificial intelligence. We're convinced that fully autonomous weapons, perhaps better known as killer robots, would pose grave dangers to civilians, and for that matter, to Other soldiers. systems are already being developed, including Russia's robot tank, BAE Systems long-range autonomous missile bomber, and Samsung sentry gun, which can fire at will. And is you want human judgment. You need a human in the loop. So nuclear command and control modernization measures that expand the time for humans in the loop to make considered judgments, that's a good thing, and that will reduce the risk. Measures that reduce the time and take the human out of the loop, I worry about that as increasing the risks of an unintended or accidental nuclear use. More than one Western military analyst has told Fox News that Putin's new weapons may, in fact, really be able to evade Western missile defense systems. As someone who specializes in the study of nuclear weapons, uh, I went through a trajectory similar to the many others. I started to be very, very concerned about it early in my professional career, which overlapped with the revival of the Cold War with, in the Reagan administration. And then after the end of the Cold War, of course, concerns of a U.S.-Soviet confrontation dropped, but were replaced with concerns that the Soviet arsenal would fall into the wrong hands. And it's only been in recent years, with the revival of Russian revanchism. Among the items he described, a nuclear-powered cruise missile and a nuclear-powered underwater drone. The emergence of a hyper-nationalist China. Are we preparing for a military clash with China? At the same time that we have a new North Korean nuclear arsenal and the Iranian nuclear problem not resolved once and for all. Now there are new reports that Iran is secretly getting nuclear weapons technology and parts to North Korea. 
You put all of those factors together, and it does feel different. It feels perhaps the least safe uh, that it's been uh, in several decades. Great. That's just great. Another uplifting episode of Science-ish. <laughs> so are, are we in a position where North Korea can hit the US mainland yet? With a nuclear strike, no. Yeah. Oh, okay. um, but we think that that's probably coming quite soon. So they've got missiles that can hit. They just haven't managed to strap on a nuclear warhead <laughs> yet. But, you know, the thing is that there's several other countries with nuclear capabilities. So for a long time, there was only five. There was USA, Russia, USSR, then the UK, France, and China. And then in the 60s, it all sort of calmed down a bit. In 68, you had the non-proliferation treaty, which basically said, okay, five countries have got it. I think no one else should have it. <laughs> Hasn't gone down um, terribly well in certain corners of the world. It's not gone down brilliantly. So although it's sort of never officially been admitted, but Israel, we think, have nuclear capabilities. India and Pakistan do mm. have had since 1998. Uh, Pakistan took the liberty of selling nuclear info to Libya and Iran and North Korea. Free market. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so there are nukes out there. Excellent. Then once you take that in, you start thinking, okay, so how can we protect ourselves if someone launched an um, ICBM, intercontinental ballistic missile? So the thing is that taking these, um, these ICBMs down is just really difficult because you have three options. So take it down when it's just been launched. So you've got a couple of minutes. Um, but the problem with that is that they're likely to be launched from within a really large landmass like Russia. So how are you getting anywhere near it in, in the first place? You could maybe have planes sort of hovering near yeah, um, just outside potential airspace. launch site, just be like, hello? Yeah. But that's not really practical. No. Uh, so then your next option is whether you you take them down in space. So they're in space for about 15 minutes. And amazingly, um, we can't tell uh, whether it is an actual warhead or a decoy. So if you were firing it, what you do is you you fire up your missile, but then you also put up um, 15 warhead-shaped balloons. (laughs) (laughs) What? Yeah. 15 warhead-shaped balloons. And because there's no air resistance, they travel in exactly the same way as the warhead. So then you're just like on your your little screen, you're looking at it going, well, it's one of those 16, but <laughs> so I really don't want to be... It's literally a balloon. It's like... Just balloons. Just balloons, like silver aluminium foil kind Look, of those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll have yeah. like a little Mickey Mouse on the side yeah, or whatever. Yeah. Um, but it's, yeah. Guys, on, it's probably not the one with Mickey Mouse on the side. Or is it? But that's the thing. Oh. If you're clever, you're wrapping your nuclear warhead in silver foil. <laughs> um, and then your last option, and then it's really starting to get sort of quite um, anxiety-inducing. And is, soiling. Uh, it's where after re-entry, and you've got a couple of minutes before it hits you. <laughs> uh, and that is, uh, that's, again, extremely difficult. Uh, and these weapons won't be disarmed or, or, or disabled by like an electromagnetic pulse. They're just going to plough on and do some big old damage. Um, and you can't shoot them out of the sky, presumably. The, yeah, the mid-course missile defence systems have been tested extensively. Between 2010 and 2017, there have been four tests, uh, and we've missed three of them. So, I mean, it's <laughs> That's a, not great, it is, is it? absolutely gash. That is not great, yeah. <laughs> so it, it feels very unlikely that we'd be able to take these missiles down. Okay, so um, we really, really want we, to avoid... We want to avoid the being fired upon us. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
So is it still just escalating into you know, bigger and bigger weapons or are there kind of new innovations in nuclear weapons technology? So under Obama in, in 2010, the New START Treaty was signed. So New START is Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty. Oh, nice. uh, and the idea was the US would lead the way in reducing the number of nuclear weapons, set a good example and everyone else would follow suit. The reality is everyone else sort of done the opposite. <laughs> everyone sort of rubbed their hands together and gone, ideal. Um, sort of working within the treaty. So the treaty talks about, you know, the number of uh, nuclear weapons you, you can have. So the Russians have been modernizing their, their nuclear systems and nuclear weapons. And they've developed an autonomous nuclear torpedo which nice. they think can will be able to cross the Pacific undetected and then release a deadly cloud of radioactivity over you know the west coast of America. And so Trump has looked at this and has, has published quite recently actually this nuclear posture review. And so he's rejected the new START treaty's idea of reducing the number of weapons. Yeah. Well, I it, guess if it, it hasn't it is. worked. It is, but then, you know, the situation we're in is that Russia have modernized their nuclear arsenal and America haven't. And so Trump is saying we should modernize ours. So let's escalate is the answer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's always worked really well in the past. It really it has, actually, hasn't it? <laughs> we were to immediately launch an all-out and coordinated attack on all their airfields and missile bases. We'd stand a damn good chance of catching them with their pants down. An unofficial study which we undertook of this eventuality, indicated that we would destroy 90% of their nuclear capabilities. We would therefore prevail and suffer only modest and acceptable civilian casualties from the remaining force, which would be badly damaged and uncoordinated. I'm not saying we wouldn't get our hair must, but I do say no more than 10 to 20 million killed, tops, uh, depending on the Brits. I will not go down in history as the greatest mass murderer since Adolf Hitler. Perhaps it might be better, Mr. President, if you were more concerned with the American people than with your image in the history books. General Turgeson, I think I've heard quite sufficient from you. Thank you very much. So, how close are we to nuclear war? I feel like this isn't going to be good news. No, I don't think it is good news. Um, as Professor Peter said, we probably are the least safe that we've been in a, in a really long time. We know that Several countries have nuclear capabilities. Several have the capability to fire intercontinental ballistic missiles. We don't really know how to defend ourselves against those. They're very difficult to take down. Um, and we've also got a situation where the people making the ultimate decision about whether to fire a nuclear missile are, you know, a, a bit antsy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so all in all... It's, it's awful. It's have, awful. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. And just a quick heads up, next week's episode is going to be on a short story. It is. Our first short story. A short story by E.M. Forster, no less, written in 1909 called The Machine Stops. Uh, and what's it about? It's basically about the internet. In 1909? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And TED Talks. Well done, Forster. It's amazing. Read it before next week. Science-ish is a Radio Wolfgang production presented by me, Rick Edwards, and Dr. Michael Brooks. The producers were Cormac McAuliffe and L. Scott. Sound designed by Ivor Slayer-Manley. Special thanks to Professor Peter Fever. 
If you like the show, please subscribe and rate and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at science underscore ish or check out our website, scienceish.org. So there's quite a, a neat little uh, online thing that gives you a nuke map. Um, and what you can do is plug in where you want to have your nuclear strike, how big you want the nuclear strike to be, and then it tells you the results. And so I did it and I was sort of looking and thinking, where do I want to drop my drop my bomb? And so I dropped a Nagasaki size bomb on Lewis. <laughs> uh, of course you did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, where you live. And I got 4,330 fatalities. That's actually, that's only a third of the town pretty much. That's yeah, not so too bad. I, I'm okay with that. There's definitely 4,000 people in Lewis I wouldn't mind living without. <laughs> Your computer makes thousands of connections every day. Just like the one it's making now to deliver you your audio content. Why not unlock some little connections of your own? Pick up a box of Cadbury Heroes today, stay at home and share them with your family or friends. Sometimes it's the little things that bring us together. 